Love and Radio. So give me a give me a test on your levels there. Test, 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 test. How's it going? The first time I saw the penis was online. It was gross. It was covered in things. Test, test, test. Um. So, well, why did you pick your story? What? Why are you about to tell this story? Um. I think it was because it was the moment that I realized that my sex life was about to begin, and it was this combination of just like, you know, I really want this. Wait, do I want this? You know, it was just, it was on, on the border, it was on the fringe of, of everything that I've loved about life since. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, go for it then. Okay. So, this is a story that I whip out often at parties, so nice. to speak. Nice. <laughs> uh, when I was 16 years old, I, uh, I really first started seeing my first boyfriend and, uh, and I was super excited. Like we went on our first date and that night I was going to sleep over at my friend's house. And right before he dropped me off at my friend's house. And, uh, as I left his car, I got my first real amazing kiss from him, you know? And, um, so I run up the stairs to her and I report on the entire date. I'm like, we're together now. It's so amazing. And then there's this moment of, oh no, Melissa, I've never seen a penis before. Like, I'm going to have to deal with penises now. Like, I have a boyfriend. You know, he's going to expect me to touch it and to see it and maybe do other things to it that make me very, very nervous, you know. And I need to be prepared. I, I don't even know, like, what size I should expect, you know. So I, we both decide. You know, she's never seen a penis either. She can't really describe it to me. All we've ever seen is line drawings, like in sex ed. And uh, we decide that... You know, it's late at night. Her parents are both asleep. We're going to go and connect to the internet and uh, find out what penises look like. <laughs> and so, so we, uh, we, you know, it's a dial-up connection, and we, um, we sign on to AOL. <laughs> right, exactly. It takes forever. We're terrified that the sound of the modem is going to wake up her parents. And uh, we just do a search for, um, I think we just Googled penis. It might have been pictures of penises. And we just, you know, we're, we're not discriminating at all. We just click on the first link, and it's an STD site. And before me, splayed before my 16-year-old eyes, are just these disgusting, disgusting penises covered in, like, cauliflower, you know, like, disgusting oozing abrasions. I mean, you do not eat. I was horrified. I literally gagged. And my friend and I are just in an uproar. We're like, okay, okay, get off that site. That's STDs. We, you know, we're just going to assume that my new boyfriend is completely clean at this, you know, for this moment. While I'm learning about penises, my boyfriend does not have an STD. Okay, so we click on the next link. <laughs> and the next link is, you know, uh, a, a porn site. And the penises are huge. And for some reason, it didn't occur to me, as it did with, with the science, you know, STD site, that, you know, okay, so this doesn't really represent all of penises. When I saw the porn penises, I was like, oh, no, they're huge. And 
until I, I don't know how long it was in our relationship when I actually you know did see a real penis. Um, we'll say something nice like eight months. Um, <laughs> I was so relieved that it was not over a foot long because I really thought that every penis was at least 13 inches long when flaccid. I made it all the way into the eighth grade without kissing a girl. I started hanging around this guy named Tim. Now Tim was totally different. He was more like kind of an artist, uh, a little bit effeminate. He wasn't afraid to talk to any girl. He'd go up and talk to the prettiest, cutest, most popular girl at school. He'd go right up and talk to her. He didn't care. I figured if I'm hanging around with this guy, then something's going to fall off the tree. Something's going to happen here. So one night, he took us to the Walter Reed Junior High School talent show at night. And I don't know if you remember at night, school at night was different. Like sometimes the bells would go off, but they didn't mean anything. And kids are running around, and it just it had that energy about it. Almost like Halloween has an energy about it. And Tim walked up to basically the most popular girl at school. And she was with a friend. And we started talking to these two girls. Now the most popular girl at Walter Reed Junior High was a girl named Missy. Missy was the most popular girl in Walter Reed Junior High because Missy had the largest breasts in school. That's all it took in junior high, think back. So we went in, place was packed. There was no seats anywhere. There appeared to be four seats right in the center of the auditorium. And we made our way through the tight aisles down into those center four seats, but it turned out there was only three seats. Missy's friend sat down, Tim sat down. There was one seat. Missy turns to me and says, That's okay. I can sit on your lap. Now keep in mind, we're in junior high, man. This does not go unnoticed, man. Everybody's turning around, tripping out, checking it out. I don't remember too much about the talent show. I do remember that um, the smell of her hair how soft her body felt. So the next day at school, I found out that Missy liked me. She wanted to go steady with me. 
Well, this is the kind of piece of information that you get that um, you can't just put in your back pocket. You gotta go for it. If you didn't do something like that, you were gay. That was like the first thing you were always accused of, you know. So I was with all my jock buddies, and we were, you know, it was at what they called nutrition, which is like recess. It was like 11 minutes, and it wasn't very nutritious, you know. But there we were at our bench. We had our bench, the kind of the jock bench. And then several benches down and over was the kind of cooler, faster girl bench of which Missy was a part. So I walked over with all my friends watching and I went to go sit down next to Missy and Missy's friends moved away because they knew the score. Everybody knew the score, man. I sit down and I say, I hear um, that you have a crush on me or, yeah, um, do, uh, do you want to go steady? Yeah. Okay, great. And then I got up and I walked back to my buddies at the jock bench. I get back to my jock bench and this is true. This is, ah man, this is so true. They were sitting there. They were watching me the whole time. That's why I wanted to get back to them because I was so self-conscious about the whole thing. I get back to them. The first words out of their mouth is, so did you feel her tits? I now had a girlfriend, and I was on a determined quest to get my first kiss. Well, at lunch I plotted with Missy a location where we might achieve this first kiss, secure enough and secluded enough that we'd both feel comfortable. But she was too shy. Everything I brought up I'd say, well, let's go over by the tree by, by your bus, just for a second. I mean, can you imagine back to that time? The idea of having never kissed and the anticipation of trying to get that first kiss. That's all you needed, just one pet kiss. That was enough. But every day she had an excuse. She was too shy. Well, let's go over by the lockers, over by the CR. No, she was too, too shy. So after about three days, we decided that things weren't quite working out, you know. And we decided to break up. So four years later, I was with my buddy Joe. We had just graduated high school. We were in a Crown Books looking at what they had, kind of a porn section. And we were looking at Gallery Magazine. And we were looking at this one section, this 3D section that you needed 3D glasses. And here we are, these two 18-year-old guys fighting over these 3D glasses in a Crown Books. I get home later that day. My mom is on the phone with her friend saying, Oh, yeah, Missy. Yeah, the real busty one. Yeah, I remember her. Oh, really? That was Lance's girlfriend. Yeah, in eight, I think eighth grade. Yeah. Hey, mom, mom, what's going on? What, what's happening? Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, I know Missy, who? So, my mom says, yeah, she's become a porn star. What? Yeah, she's in magazines and, and, and movies. What are, you, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, she was in a gallery magazine or a hustler get the car keys. I drive to this other newsstand, this one that's kind of funkier. I go back into Gallery Magazine. I don't see her. I look all the way through the magazine, don't see her. 
to go back to the 3D section, put on the glasses. There she is. We had just looked at her, and we didn't even see her. Now, she was in the magazine about a hustler that she was called Dee Dee. But the person that she became was Christy Canyon, one of the biggest porn stars of the 80s. One time I was in an adult bookstore. There's an unwritten rule in adult bookstores. You don't talk to the other customers. But I was standing next to this guy. And I was feeling kind of alienated at the time. I just wanted to maybe reach out or whatever. And not literally. And wanted to just say, hey, dude, you're looking at a whole magazine of my very first girlfriend. And she, he just looked at me and said, did you fuck her? I was shocked. I was, it was like, what? But I said the thing that I always said. No, I didn't even kiss her. Jamie was my first girlfriend, and since I didn't date anyone for several years after that, for a long time she was my only girlfriend, even though we were only together for a couple of months. I was a sophomore in high school and Jamie was a junior. I met Jamie backstage in the auditorium. When I saw her, she was sitting on the floor with my friend Diane and Travia, untangling wiring from some lighting equipment. Diane, incidentally, was the first vegetarian I'd ever met, and was also so ticklish that simply pointing a finger towards her would make her shriek and run away. Diane introduced me to Jamie. And when Jamie looked up at me with her big brown eyes, I felt my stomach squirm a little. There was something very cute about her. How the hell are you? was the first thing Jamie said to me. She had a strange way of talking. Her voice changed in pitch a lot, up and down in a low, throaty alto swagger, saying things that sounded like a strange version of Mae West. How the hell are you? was her standard greeting followed by an open-mouthed laugh that sounded like a combination of a yodel and the sound of chromakes. At the time, I thought this was the most charming thing I'd ever heard, this, how the hell are you, and this unselfconscious laughter. And her smile, the way she smiled at me, all open and warm. I wasn't a kid who had good luck with women, to say the least. I developed intense crushes on demure little violin players that I met in orchestra, who would do well in the SATs, and had grades almost but just not good enough to be valedictorian. They would go on to good schools and they'd laugh at my jokes but would never date me. Despite how close I would get to them, my face was always covered in a fresh crop of pink pimples that sometimes bled in class. And perhaps I could have overcome that if I had not been a bit shy and awkward too, but I was and that was that. So, how the hell are you? And that laugh, that was something different from the suspiciousness of the violin girls. (laughs) 
I sat down with Jamie and Diane and helped them untangle some more lights, and over the next ten minutes I fell for Jamie in the obsessive, dramatic way that I fell for all girls before her and for years after. I don't remember much more of our first meeting, except one weird little detail. I know we ended up talking for a while, and then one of us, I can't remember which one, was riding on the other's shoulders in the pit in front of the stage. And then we fell over, and I ended up knocking my pecker against something, and this became our joke, that I'd hit my nuts. Jamie said, How the hell are your balls? whenever she saw me. And I thought this was so charming. A week after we met, we were dating. I was thrilled. It's insane how fast the dating process happened in high school. The wait three days before you call stuff that ruled my 20s and still has a residual effect on how I deal with women these days would have seemed totally ludicrous back then, simply because Jamie was entering my circle of friends, the theater geeks, and we all hung out every morning before classes and worked on sets after school. And so I saw her often and was able to talk to her almost whenever I wanted. I could not wait to get to school so that I could sit with her in the hallway before class. And once the bell rang and I needed to get to first period, I couldn't wait for the school day to be over so I could meet her backstage. Jamie was the first girl I kissed, other than my best friend's sister, when we were very young. And it's odd to me to say that I can't remember much about that kiss or where it happened. I do remember that I put my tongue in her mouth very quickly, and looking back now, I'm sure I forced it in there with all the subtlety of a speculum. And I remember being frustrated that her tongue didn't come up to meet mine, it just sort of laid there on the bottom of her mouth. But other details have slipped away. I can't remember if she had braces or what her mouth tasted like, or whether I put my hands on her or what. You'd think I could remember every detail, but those first kisses were probably the terrifying kind, and I was too scared to notice much of anything. The early parts of our relationship were heavenly to me. It was like spring water to a man who had been thirsty for a long, long time. I started developing big crushes on girls in the fourth grade, but my feelings were always overwhelming, and through junior high school, my love had either been totally unrequited or mortifyingly rejected. So to be able to walk in the hallway with her and see her in the morning, or walk her to the bus in the evening was a great pleasure. It was an amazing feeling to finally have a girlfriend, and the only problem with the scenario was Jamie herself. She had some strange personality traits that I think I picked up on, but ignored because I wanted it all to work. Jamie monopolized conversations with the subject of herself, or more specifically, how dumb she was. From the day I met her, she peppered conversations with, I'm an idiot, or, listen baby, I'm just not that smart. I'd add them to the list of things I found charming about her, because at the time, covered in acne and afraid of gym class, I can't say I had any self-esteem worth a damn, so someone who made self-deprecating comments about herself just made me feel more comfortable. It was the way I felt about myself, so it didn't seem so odd, but the way she said them was discomforting. She laughed when she said them, gleefully. She got as excited about getting a straight D report card as I did about getting a few A's. Jamie also seemed to have a sadistic streak. She wore two old costume jewelry rings in her left hand. If I was walking on her right side and went to hold hands with her, she would cross in front of me, grab my right hand with her left, and dig the sides of the rings into the soft sides of my fingers. I'd ask her why she was doing that, and she'd say, I want to hurt you. But I still enjoyed dating her. I enjoyed the simple pleasures of having someone to hug and kiss. And since I hadn't really ever had a girlfriend before, I had nothing to compare Jamie to, and so I wasn't sure that maybe all kisses felt like ours, ordinary and not exciting. And Jamie, despite a fairly obvious lack of intelligence and a strange, subtle cruelty, 
was probably just your average narcissistic stupid teenager and I was your average oversensitive obsessive boyfriend and even in a situation like that doomed to failure there are still some simple pleasures Once my mom dropped me off at Jamie's house and told me she'd be back to pick me up in a couple of hours. Jamie had told me about her parents and how they were as dumb as she was. Jamie's house was a split-level ranch in the next town over, part of a gigantic development that had been built in the 70s, row upon row of identical houses with little lawns. This was suburban Long Island. I'm sure if you flew over them now, you'd see that half of them have pools filling up their small backyards, with the rest of them having grass and garden sheds. Jamie's parents were sitting around the kitchen table when I came in. Jamie's dad was in his 50s, older, balding, with a baby face and blubbery cheeks. Jamie's mom had stringy blonde hair and sad eyes. Jamie told me that her mom married her dad because she thought he was so pathetic, which sounded like an odd motivation to me. Both her parents were soft around people, perfectly circular around the waist. I shook her dad's hand and said hello. He looked at me for a while passively, and after a while he said hello back. His face was totally blank. I'd never seen someone so totally devoid of thought. It was impressive. He was almost Buddha-like in his total lack of connection to me or anything else in the room. Where Jamie liked to talk about how dumb she was, her father seemed to have given into it and let it wash over him. There was no need to explain. Eventually, looking bored, he got up and went to bed. Her mom smiled and gave me a glass of water and then followed Jamie's dad to their bedroom. We went down the back to the den, which was behind the kitchen, sort of Brady Bunch style. Jamie and I sat down on the couch, and I put my hands around her shoulders. She put her hand on my chest, and then I kissed her. After I'd kissed her lips a few times, I jammed my tongue in her mouth, searching for her own. I knew that this kind of kissing was supposed to be intensely pleasurable, but mostly it felt like playing hide-and-seek with someone who was hidden under a car and then fell asleep. That's the frustrating thing about kissing when you were young. You were expecting so much, but neither you nor your partner have much experience doing it. Pretty soon I had my hand up her shirt. I was worried that she would push me away, but she didn't seem to mind. I found the sensation of being free with a girl like that overwhelming. I love you, I blurted out. She stopped kissing me and looked in my eyes. You do? Yes. Do you love me, I asked. I think so, she said. Later I would get her to say it, to give in to loving me. I held her to it, made her say it, like making her say uncle, and I was dumb enough to believe that she meant it. Even now, I think it's the truth. I loved her. Maybe it was puppy love or crush love or obsessional love, but it was still love love. You take a too sensitive young guy raised by two commitment-centric parents, and you hit him hard with puberty around the end of the sixth grade, and then you give him some real bad cystic acne in the beginning of the seventh, bad enough that no girl will go near him for the first four years, and I'll tell you, the first girl that does is going to get back some weird kind of love. It's a kind of love that someone who's begun to pity himself comes naturally to, but it's love, and the one or two of you who might be hearing this and have never experienced a self-destructive kind of love, or have never found yourself hating someone you used to love, just sit down on your hands and hold your tongues. No, I love Jamie, and I felt it strong enough to tell her. I loved all the things about her that I would grow to hate, the way her face was covered in freckles, I loved that her smile was as big as a hamburger, and the way her eyes spun around in her head sometimes when she talked, and I loved her funny wide-legged walk. One day after school, a friend drove Jamie and I to my parents' house. 
My parents weren't home, I knew that. We sat on the big blue couch that still sits in our TV room and watched TV. It was not more than a few moments before I'd put my arms around her and kissed her. I put my tongue in her mouth and moved it around, searching for hers, but like before, her tongue was stuck on the bottom of her mouth like a fish sitting in the bottom of a pool. But at least I was kissing a girl, not just kissing a girl, kissing Jamie, who I loved. Soon we were on the floor and I was moving my hands under her shirt and now under her bra and I could feel the tip of one of her breasts in my hand. And I was disappointed because she seemed disinterested in this and I was not. I was not disinterested at all. Then I moved my hands from her chest and held her side. I put little soft kisses on her neck and then moved to her belly and kissed her there and kissed her as many times as I could, moving a little each time, imagining the mark of my lips covering her all over, almost like lipstick. I like that. That's really nice, she said. Me too. I said, I like kissing you. She let me pull her blouse over her head, and then, and I've always been good at this, I found the clasp of her bra, and with my thumb and index finger, I felt the elastic stretch briefly as the clasp bent in on itself and then popped open. She pulled her bra off, and then I leaned down and let my tongue roll over her nipples. Jamie seemed to not mind terribly as I popped the button on her pants and unzipped her fly. Maybe she was thinking that if she didn't move too much, I might get bored and move away. My hand and I were terrified, but with my index and middle finger inched farther down, one finger at a time, like an inchworm, my palm flat against her tummy. My first misunderstanding was the distance between her waistline and the place where the hair began. I realized later, after thinking about it for several years, that her pants rode high on her hips. It took me a full minute to transverse the hairless portion of her pelvis, and it seemed like the longest minute ever. And then I felt the border of her hair, and it was tight and curly and I was surprised how much it felt like my own hair, in a way that made me feel uncomfortable. But I kept moving lower, and still no hole, and then lower still, and still nothing. And I started to feel more nervous, and that nervousness made me more conscious of what I was doing, and I knew that my parents would not be happy that I was doing this, and that God would not like me doing this, and I wasn't sure that I even liked doing it that much. And Jamie was moving on the floor slightly, and I was afraid she would push me away. So I kissed her on her belly, and I felt her hand move in my hair, and then I moved my hand a little more, and then I felt something. It was a small gap, and it was moist, just barely moist, a fleshy crevasse, and my index finger slipped down into it. And that must have been it. This was the magic hole. But I felt around for it, and there was no hole. No place for my penis, which is what I thought it was for. I did my best to pretend that I knew what was going on. Jamie was laying there and didn't look concerned, so I kept touching the spot and trying to find the hole, but all I could find was more moist flesh. And then I heard a car pull up in the driveway, and a few seconds later, through the window, just a few feet away, my mom was on our front stoop. I could hear her keys clanking in her hand. She was home from work. I heard her open the storm door. I pulled Jamie's bra over quickly, and then she pulled on her shirt as my mom put her key in the front door. And I saw the front door of the house moving. We moved forward to face the television. My mom walked in the door and looked down at the two of us, and I think she knew what was happening. Her face filled with sadness and disappointment. I think mostly because she knew that I was getting involved with a woman I would come to hate. That was the closest I would come to finding the magic hole for the next three years. A few days after the vagina hunt, I went backstage when Diane and Travia walked in. I have something to tell you, she said. Jamie is breaking up with you. Immediately I felt a force of heat rise from my chest and through my cheeks. I felt my cheeks redden, felt my lips become blubbery and loose. Why, I said. That doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry, she wanted me to tell you. 
She said she thinks you just want to have a girlfriend. I went home early that night, didn't stay to help build sets. I called Jamie's house a few times, but there was no answer. I was so nervous that I needed to clear my bowels every half an hour. I couldn't think of anything else but her. It made no sense to me. She loved me, she told me, and I didn't know what that meant, just wanting to have a girlfriend. The weekend after that, my parents and I took a ride to our ski cabin in upstate New York. I made my parents play Bonnie Raitt's sad ballad, I Can't Make You Love Me, over and over again, which is mortifyingly overdramatic in retrospect. I'm not sure if my parents knew what was going on with me. I stopped talking for a while. I was heartbroken, walking around in a daze for a couple of months afterwards. I've always wondered why my experience with Jamie bothers me so much. I'm not the first guy who's made a fool of himself by getting so obsessed with the prospect of getting some action that he ends up with someone who he's poorly matched with. It's mortifying to me to sit here and remember it all, but it happened so long ago that it seems almost bizarre to still think about it. I can see now that Jamie was not a bad person, just a fucked up, stupid teenager with a disquieting streak of sadism. I can only thank her for dumping me. If things had gone how my horny and stupid little heart desired back then, I can only imagine the horrible scenarios. I guess the reason I remember this and still think about it sometimes is that because Jamie broke my heart in a way that repeated itself over and over after that, with women from a variety of backgrounds, a painful pattern that I think I've only broken in the last couple of years. One thing Jamie said, the part about me just wanting a girlfriend, was amazingly insightful. At the time, I had no idea what it meant. It seemed like such a stupid thing to say. Of course I just wanted to have a girlfriend. Doesn't every 16-year-old? Because it was the first of many times I was to hear it, I learned that something must be there. And now looking back, I have to hand it to Jamie. She hit the nail on the head. We had nothing in common, and really there were very few things past the surface that I really liked about her, other than she let me put my hands on her body at a time when I needed nothing more than to have a girl let me do that. But while I'm confident that I loved her, I didn't particularly like her. I just needed her to fit a role that I needed to fill to feel comfortable with myself. It could be six or seven years since I saw her last, after I got out of college and was living with my parents for a couple of years. I went into a local bar, where I would often bump into a few friends from high school. That night there were five or six people from the theater group, and Jamie was in the middle of them. I said hello to all of them, and Jamie said, Hey Paul, how the hell are you? Her face looked strained, like she knew I didn't like her, or maybe she didn't want to see me, and I guess my face looked strained too. I said hello to her and asked her how she was doing, and we talked for a few moments. And then I left and drove home, with the desire to be nowhere but as far away from her as I could, as far away as I could be. Players, Barbie and Ken, a G.I. Joe whose muscular body twisted and bent in all the right places, a cowboy whose hair and handsome cowboy outfit eerily were both a part of his body, plastic reliefs painted varying shades of brown, 
a Julia doll, the, the only doll of color aside from Asian G.I. Joe, and the only healthcare worker, a small girl whose hair I cut short and declared he or she as the spirit moved me. What I did was sit in the closet and make them all have sex. Not just casual flings, but heated dramas continuing from one day to another, involving passionate triangles and tales of romantic tragedy, unrequited love, illicit sex, homosexuality, heterosexuality, reversible transsexualism, objects from the doll's dowries, a plastic horse, a small nurse's kit, a feather boa, a very tiny replica of a World War II machete, easily were incorporated into my play, as were other objects not so readily available. The funny thing is, in the beginning, it wasn't even sex that I was after. It was a penis. The sex just followed as it usually does, once a penis is located. I blame it on my conservative father and the fact that I have no brothers, that I didn't know what a penis looked like until well into my teens. Late teens. Really late. As a preteen, I asked my mother to buy me boy dolls, thinking that I might get to see a penis. And so I lay further blame on Mattel in our repressed puritanical culture that refuses to make dolls anatomically correct for my need to sexualize every doll I ever owned. Despite my ignorance, I had the evolutionary wherewithal to guess that, whatever the details, penises most likely were more substantial than the slight lumps Ken and G.I. Joe sported. The cowboy's anatomy obviously remained a mystery, sealed as it was beneath his permanent plastic clothing. If you want to see a penis and you want your dolls to be able to have sex, real sex, not lump-mashing sex, then lumps are frustrating and entirely inadequate. I longed for the facts, the secret to which all the boys around me and most of the girls were privy, but mostly I longed for bulges. I wanted my male dolls to bulge obviously and firmly at the crotch. I wanted to be able to pull down their pants and find something there, taking up space and explanation for why boys' underwear was different from my own. I wanted to see one, damn it. And later in life, I wanted to have one, but that's a whole other story. My younger sister Carrie saw a penis years before I did. In fact, the penis Carrie saw belonged to none other than our father. One summer, our family spent a week in a small and smelly two-room cottage on Cape Cod. We all shared the bedroom, my parents on twin beds and Carrie and I on cots. One afternoon, Carrie innocently came in from the beach looking for a towel. She padded into the bedroom without knocking and was witness to my father changing into his bathing suit. He barked something at her and then chased the stunned but smiling six-year-old out of the room. As soon as Carrie had regained her composure, she ran down the beach to where I was playing and chanted, I saw Daddy naked, I saw Daddy naked. Well, like any older sibling used to the painstaking measures each parent takes to maintain a semblance of equality between offspring, cutting perfectly symmetrical pieces of cake, spending exactly the same amount of money on birthday presents, I ran inside to claim what I had no doubt was rightly my due, a chance to see my father naked. I get to see him too, I announced to my mother who stood guard by the bedroom door. No, you don't. But Carrie got to see him. 
your sister walked into the bedroom by accident. Well, then I can too, I said as I tried to storm by my mother to reenact the incredible occasion as if my father still were standing there, mid-change, frozen in time, until justice was served and balance restored to our eternally symmetrical family. It's not fair, I shouted as my mother physically restrained me. What? I had wanted to see a penis for so long, and to make matters even more unbearable, as far as I knew, Carrie hadn't even wanted to see one. Besides, hadn't Carrie's faux pas broken the ice surrounding the issue of dad's nudity? Like, what difference would it make if another daughter saw him? Come on, the modesty gig is up, show me the goods. Instead, my father came barreling out of the bedroom, embarrassed and angry, not to mention dressed, and bellowed, outside, now. And that was that. On the other hand, I was very well versed in the anatomy of women and girls. I knew that girls had either bald or blonde-haired vaginas, and that when you grew up, they grew curly dark hairs in the shape of a big triangle. This hair color myth wasn't shattered until one day in the locker room at summer camp when I saw that my friend Janice, exactly my age, had dark down in her pubic region the same color as my mother's curly triangle revelation. The color of pubic hair has nothing to do with age. I had seen the Playboy magazines owned secretly by the boys in the neighborhood, not to mention those owned secretly by my repressed conservative father. My mother had showered and taken baths with us when we were very young, so I knew too all about breasts and nipples and their varying shapes and sizes. Maybe it was because of my competence with female anatomy that I wasn't as frustrated by the lack of detail among my female dolls. So none of them had nipples, big deal. It made me feel superior, like I was more knowledgeable than the doll manufacturers. Every so often I would draw on a pair of nipples with a magic marker, but really it was hardly an issue. The penis lump thing, however, gnawed at me. Sex between my dolls became unsatisfying, because despite having never seen a penis, I did know a little bit about sex. My brazen mother early on had answered the where do babies come from, why do boys have penises, what is sex question with this story. A man and a woman love each other very much, and then the man puts his penis in the woman's vagina. She even bought me a book with some vague sketches of naked boys and girls asking their naked parents similar questions, to which they received the same answer. My best friend Lori, who had an older brother and knew everything, confirmed this story, and once, to my extreme titillation, even acted it out for me. At any rate, the vague sketches revealed that boys had little hot dogs instead of lumps. This made much more sense to me since I was a veritable expert on female genitalia and reasoned, therefore, that a lump could not go into a vagina, thank you very much. So the male doll lump frustration weighed heavily upon me until one day, during a particularly steamy orgy in the closet, I was host to yet another revelation. Why not make penises and attach them to the guys? The idea excited me more than I care to admit. Enter modeling clay. I burst out of the closet and began sculpting away. 
The results were remarkable. Ken now had a modest package beneath his dress pants. G.I. Joe had a nice bulge to match his biceps and washboard stomach. Even the transsexual packed a load. If I was thrilled, one can only guess how Barbie and Julia and the small ballerina who smelled like perfume felt. Since doll sex took place in the closet, it's obvious that I already had internalized my parents' inclination to keep silent all evidence of sex and or nudity. But now, unless I wanted to load and unload genitalia daily, all my doll play would have to be relegated to the closet. I deemed it a small price to pay and began a ritual of hiding my dolls and all of their belongings in a box in the back corner of my bedroom closet. I couldn't figure out which would be worse, my parents finding out that my dolls were sexually active or that I carefully had sculpted little clay penises and attached them to all the men. Everything was going along fine. The cowboy in his permanent plastic clothing had had affairs with both the transsexual and Julia. Ken was gay most of the time. Barbie hung out with G.I. Joe a lot, and I was quite content, having satisfied my desire for a well-hung cast of plastic friends. My sculptures even evolved a bit as I learned more about the anatomy of a penis. One day, Joey, a friend and neighbor, had sat cross-legged in his bathing suit, offering me a quick glimpse of the bounty within. So given how well my clandestine doll playing was going, I naturally got a bit lax in my secrecy. One day, just once... I left the doll box next to my bed rather than in the closet. One time only. Just one false move. My fatal flaw. I was downstairs watching television when Carrie, four feet tall with crazy blonde hair and a small pot belly poking out from under her pink t-shirt, came into the den. She stared at me. A blonde, beer-drinking elf staring at me with an expression akin to that of Perry Mason having just led his opponent into confessing the most heinous of crimes. Her eyes were on fire. You put clay down your doll's pants, she said, grinning from ear to ear, as it was apparent she had just scored the most powerful of all weapons against me, even potentially more dangerous than when she was told that I had to go see a talking doctor because I cried whenever my mother left me at my friend Wendy's house. They said I had separation anxiety, but I think it was because Wendy's mother had a German accent and my post-World War II Jewish parents had taught me to fear all things German. Anyway, this was better. Because everyone on the block knew what dolls were, and everyone knew what clay was, and everyone knew that you don't put clay down your doll's pants, unless, of course, you were obsessed with shit or, God forbid, genitalia. You put clay down your doll's pants. Carrie repeated it as she continued to stare at me, proof that yes, in fact, her older sister truly was the most embarrassing creature who ever lived. Why did you put clay down your doll's pants? She was eight. I was 11. Because. Not interested in or perhaps terrified of the answer I might give, Carrie took off down the hall yelling, Harley puts clay down her doll's pants. Harley puts clay down her doll's pants all around the house. You'd think she would have raced into the street right then and there to tell anyone she could find, but she didn't. She saved it. Saved it and tortured me with it. 
blackmailed me as only an eight-year-old sister can, threatened me with it whenever it suited her, used it to get all sorts of things out of me. It worked better than when she turned up her lip and threatened to burst into tears if I wouldn't let her have a toy, the last cookie, whatever she desired at the moment. Carrie saved it and played it until one day her moment came. She had been angry with me for I don't remember what, having taken the front seat, having changed the channel, having gotten to stay up later than her too many nights in a row. I was sitting in my bedroom looking at magazines, not with Lori, my best friend, who somehow would have helped me to turn the tables on Carrie, but with Jamie and Renee, representatives of the popular crowd. Sure, we were reading magazines, but we also were participating in some serious hazing. We were sixth graders, rulers of the elementary school. Jamie and Renee were our two leaders, and they were checking me out for potential inclusion in their clique. Carrie, visibly fuming at me, peeked her intuitive blonde head into my room. She waited until we all noticed her, and then she threw the grenade. Harley puts clay down her doll's pants. There was silence for a moment, terrible, dreadful, prepubescent silence, during which an awful heat crept up my spine and into my face, causing me to blush the most embarrassing shade of red ever to be found in a New Jersey suburb. Even Carrie stood speechless and spent in the doorway, as unsure as I as to what might happen next. And then I had it. I would tell them it was a project for art class. While everyone else was told to go home and cut pictures out of magazines in order to make collages, I, because I knew so much about the anatomy of boys and men, was given special permission to sculpt genitalia out of clay. My little sister was just bragging. But before I had a chance to gather my breath and spin my lie, Jamie and Renee, with looks that were a mixture of disdain and pity, said to me almost in unison, You still play with dolls? Much to my surprise, their absolute inability to imagine the possibility of making clay penises and forcing your dolls to fuck their brains out somehow, suddenly, made me the expert in male genitalia I'd always wanted to be. Yeah, I said. Well, that's cool. Whatever. Carrie and I exchanged glances, and then she wandered away down the hall. That's it for Love and Radio. The show was produced and edited by Adrian Mathewitz and myself, Nick Vanderkoll. This is episode six, Show Me Yours. We began with Ruminations by Adrian, followed by Lance Anderson, who talked about porn star Christy Canyon. Lance is the host of The Verge of the Fringe, podcasting at vergeofthefringe.blogspot.com. We also heard from Paul McAvoy, who read about Jamie, his first girlfriend. You can read more of his work at paulmacavoy.net. That's M-C-E-V-O-Y dot net. And finally, we heard In the Closet with Barbie, written and performed by Harlan Aisley. Harlan is the author of Buying Dad, One Woman's Search for the Perfect Sperm Donor. Her website is buyingdad.com. To find out more about Love and Radio, please visit our website at loveandradio.org. 
If you'd like to tell your story on the show, get in touch with us. Our email address is contact at loveandradio.org. 